Hello and welcome to AUSU Open Mic. AUSU Open Mic is a podcast brought to you by the Athabasca University Students Union. AUSU serves undergraduate students at Athabasca University from coast to coast to coast and all around the world. Today we are bringing you Dr. Laura Armstrong, who was kind enough to speak at AUSU's Psych Night on the topic of what you can do with a psychology degree and how to leverage that into practicing clinical psychology. Enjoy. So I'm Dr. Laura Armstrong, and I'm a clinical psychologist. I work with children, adolescents, adults, couples, and families, so quite a lot of areas of competency. I do not work with seniors because as a psychologist, in order to work with seniors, you have to have a neuropsych background in that population. So as a student, I got to work with a lot of seniors, but because my neuropsych background would be more in the child area, I work with basically everyone from like zero to 65. Now, for my research though, it is focused on children. I have a mental health promotion program for children that uses original music and hands-on activities to teach kids skills for resilience. And anyone, including teachers or community leaders, can implement the program because the teaching, we have video teaching episodes and the hands-on activities are really easy to administer. So it's kind of neat that it's at the stage where it can just be implemented widely and the program promotes not only child mental health but also meaning mindset in other words agency over thoughts and behaviors self-esteem hope for the future and openness to experience like openness to learning open to feelings and it's it's really fun I'm enjoying that now I'm an associate professor at St. Paul University and I'll tell you a little more about that later when I talk more about what I do as a psychologist. So today, Karen told me that the most common questions were, what can you do with an undergrad psych degree? And what do you have to study to become a psychologist or other mental health practitioner who practices psychotherapy? So that's what we're going to talk about mostly today. I want to show you what it's like to be a psychologist a little bit. Now, this is a very basic thing that psychologists might teach a client because most of the time when you're interacting with clients, it's all about the therapeutic relationship. It's all about being able to connect with the client and deepen what they're experiencing. It's not about advice giving. You don't talk in therapy like you would to a friend. You basically reflect back what a client is saying, summarize, notice patterns that a client isn't noticing, and you weave the therapy tools from your chosen therapeutic framework into that relationship aspect of therapy. So here's one of the therapy tools. I'd like you to imagine a pink elephant in the room. Is it big or is it little? So someone unmute their microphone and shout out whether the pink elephant is big or little. 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 Okay, so it's a little pink elephant. Okay, are its ears up or down? Down. Down. Okay. So I'd like all of you to picture this little pink elephant, its ears down. Is its trunk up or is it curved down? Mm, Up. Up. Okay. So little pink elephant, its ears are down, its trunk is up, and is its tail curved or long and straight? Curved. Curved. Okay. So I'd like you all to picture this pink elephant. It's little, its ears are down, its trunk is up, and its tail is curved. Okay. Really picture this pink elephant. Really, really picture it. Everyone got that pink elephant in their head? Okay, now stop thinking about the pink elephant. What are you thinking about? What are you guys thinking about? 
about stopping about the pink elephant, but I still see the pink, pink elephant. elephant. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So now I'd like you all to notice just five things around the room right now in the room you're sitting in. Five things that you can see right now. So just in your head, think of the five things that you can see right now in the room. I'll notice five things I can see. Okay. Four things you can touch right now. You don't have to touch them, but they have to be close enough that you can touch them. So four things I can touch right now. Okay. Three things I can hear right now. So you want to think of three things you can hear right now. Okay. Two things I can smell right now. And if you can't smell anything, go back to two things you can see. Okay. Now take one big deep breath. What's going on for you right now? Mm. Maybe relax. Okay, what happened to the pink elephant? Still there. Okay, but because I mentioned it, or was it still there? No, it's still it? there. It's still there. Yeah. Okay, but you feel more relaxed. Mm -hmm. And maybe the trunk right. went went down. Okay, so for you, the pink elephant is still there. For a lot of people, when I do that exercise, the pink elephant disappears. I'm like, oh yeah, I stopped thinking about it about the pink elephant until you mentioned it again, right? But what you're saying is actually more in line with, say, if someone had anxiety, if someone had a lot of worries, and they tell themselves to stop thinking about those things, they'd really be thinking about those things, right? Because you can't force yourself to stop thinking about things. But if you do a grounding exercise, like the five, four, three, two, one, so that's a very basic exercise, five, four, three, two, one, five things you can see, four things you can touch if you wanted to touch them, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and then one big deep breath then it kind of reduced, you, you felt more relaxed, right? So even though the thoughts might still be there, you feel more relaxed in that context. So the purpose of such an exercise of doing something like five, four, three, two, one, is to just calm down a little bit, because if you're really anxious or really stressed about something, it's almost like the front part of your brain goes offline and you can't even think clearly. It's basically like you're in fight or flight mode. If you're in the woods and a bear is coming at you, then you you don't want to have to have, take the time to think about what to do you want to take immediate action fight or flight right so breathing will get fast and then your adrenaline takes over and then you will do what you need to do to survive but under everyday circumstances when there's no bear in front of you you want to do the opposite of fighting whatever's whatever you're facing so that one big deep breath at the end actually is the opposite of the anxious breathing that leads to fight or flight the being present in the moment with those five the five four three two phase of that five four three one helps you get out of those anxious thoughts so they don't really start to spiral and it helps you calm down just enough so that some of the more tricky things that you do in therapy and get to use outside of therapy will work. So calm down strategies are useful in order to be able to do some of the trickier problem solving and challenging unhelpful thoughts work. Okay. I didn't want to interrupt you when you were talking, but maybe I spoke a little bit too soon, but a few seconds after I said relaxed, I didn't see the elephant. Isn't, isn't that interesting? So the yeah. elephant went away for a little bit too. Yeah. Isn't that neat? A couple of seconds after. That's yeah. Great. <laughs> okay. Thanks. So a psychologist practices psychotherapy and they use evidence-based tools to help people manage their feelings like things, anxiety, depression, obsessions, compulsions, traumatic events, 
anything like someone someone might come because they're having trouble coping with a situation that happened in the past so it might be a situation or something else that they're having trouble dealing with so it doesn't mean that someone has to have a diagnosis in order to see a psychologist I would just say the most common thing that I see in my practice when I'm working with say people between maybe 12 and 24 would be social anxiety and social anxiety would be something like challenges you know if you have to be in a performance situation where you're being evaluated by others that would be performance the performance anxiety aspect of social anxiety or you know you're worried about answering questions in your university classes or you're worried about having to present in class all that would fit under social anxiety that's what I see the most often in the kind of 12 to 24 age range depression I see obviously sometimes in, in youth as well. And during the pandemic, one interesting aspect of depression is that people became so overwhelmed, I guess, because of the pandemic, that when they got depressed on top of that, they started shutting off their feelings entirely, which means they're missing, well, they weren't feeling the pleasurable feelings, but they also couldn't feel the negative feelings, the challenging feelings. So they're missing all the cues of what's going on in the environment. So if you're having an unhelpful thought, they don't even know that they're having an unhelpful thought because they don't have a feeling. They don't have an emotion coming up to say something's going on. So that's the purpose of feelings. All feelings are helpful because they say something's going on. Either there's, there's a real threat in the environment or there's an unhelpful thought going on underneath, underneath that. I'd say another, a couple interesting types of concerns that I work with would be things like bipolar disorder or seasonal affective disorder. With those two, one neat thing about working with those is you can see patterns very clearly before someone goes into a manic state and patterns before someone goes into a depressed state or someone has a seasonal depression, you can see the exact pattern and how it differs from other seasons. And if you put things in place to kind of change the typical pattern, you can actually prevent um, manic episodes or depressed episodes or a seasonal depression. So that's that's a really rewarding one to work with. So, and anxiety is too, because anxiety, if you're working with someone who has a phobia, say, I'll, I'll just explain the difference between a fear and a phobia. If someone, say there's a spider on a dock, and you want to go swimming and you know you're afraid of spiders but you're like you know what? i really want to go swimming and you go swimming anyways that's a fear but it becomes a phobia if that spider prevents you from going swimming so as soon as something has an impact on something you really want to do or on your social functioning or other is of functioning that's where it becomes something that's diagnosable but I don't actually necessarily convey a diagnosis to clients unless it's something that would be really helpful for them. So for some clients, it's helpful because then they feel like, oh, I have something that other people have and this is treatable, this is great, right? So sometimes it can be helpful for me to share a diagnostic label. Other times I don't, I just say, oh, you know, so when, when you're feeling really sad or when you're feeling anxious, but I don't necessarily say you have social anxiety disorder, right? especially since a lot of those concerns with treatment go away or can go away. So I don't necessarily convey the, the label. Some, some concerns are more longer term, like generalized anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder. Even if you treat them, sometimes they come back in a 
a new way. And so that's why it's helpful to give clients a toolbox so they can actually manage future symptoms that can come up. So the other thing that there, that psychologists do is address unhelpful thoughts. We diagnose mental, we diagnose mental illness. And if we work with children and youth, we might diagnose learning challenges. If we work with seniors, we might diagnose something like Alzheimer's. And to do this diagnosis, we conduct a thorough assessment. And because we have doctorates in psychology, we can teach us full-time professors. And that's a really fun job teaching as a professor because you can, you have to teach and do research, provide students, and you can do whatever you want for your research. So I have my mental health promotion program for children and I miss music. So I'm like, I'm going to write songs for this, right? So that's, I, I was able to, to do what I really want to do. And so that's really fun. Plus it's a very good, either being just a psychologist with private practice or being a professor and also having a little private practice is a very good work-life balance because you can set your own schedule in a lot of ways. I don't set my own schedule in terms of the courses I teach, but I choose courses that fit kind of the time period that I like to teach in. And so it's very family-friendly because I'm also a parent. I have three kids ranging from two to 13. Karen mentioned that I'm a psychologist at St. Paul University. And specifically, I teach in the School of Counseling, Psychotherapy, and Spirituality. I teach the master's students how to be registered psychotherapists. So a psychotherapist does all the same sort of therapy as I do, and they can do thorough assessments to know what concern the person's presenting with, but they can't convey the diagnosis. So that's really the core difference is not being able to convey the diagnosis, but they do know oh, this is bipolar versus borderline personality disorder because those have a completely different treatment plan. And so a psychotherapist will learn how to, how to do that kind of assessment so they know what it is that they're working with, even if they can't share the diagnostic label. Now, what happens if you just stop with an undergrad in psych? Let's see what you can do. There's actually a whole lot of things that you can do with an undergrad in psychology. I heard someone earlier saying they were a counselor at Athabasca, yeah, you could be you could be a counselor. Some of my students before they came into the master's program, they might have been addictions counselors, or they might be a counselor on a campus. So you can counsel. You can't practice the controlled active psychotherapy, but you can counsel. And you can be a psychometrist. So a psychometrist would be, say, if a psychologist who does psychoeducational assessments, in other words, assesses for learning. If, uh, if they have a very busy private practice, they sometimes hire someone who's an undergrad in psychology to do the actual assessment piece. So the psychologist would be do like meet, meet with the family for the first session. And then the psychometrist would meet with the child and do the assessment. The psychologist would then take the results of that, put it together in a report and provide the feedback. So collaboratively, the psychometrist would work with the psychologist. If you are in any of the professions that are listed below, it's a great idea to have a background in psychology because you can truly understand kind of human nature. So if you're a police officer, one of the most common calls you're going to get is a mental health call. So it's really helpful to actually have a background in psychology. To be a writer, understanding human nature is a wonderful thing. That's actually what directed me when I was 13 years old, I wanted to be a psychologist because I wanted to write novels. <laughs> That'd be helpful. 
that'd be a helpful field. I haven't written a novel yet. I get seven chapters in and that's as far as I get. But uh, I have a lot of textbooks I've published and a lot of journal articles I've published. But, and that's kind of fun. It is fun to, to publish those too because you tell a story through those as well. If you want to be a writer, having an undergrad in psychology can be really helpful. And the others just give you some different ideas of what you could do as well. But what happens if you want to practice the controlled act of psychotherapy? Well, there are, first of all, let me kind of step back a bit. What is psychotherapy? I told you a little bit about it earlier, but let's tell you a little more. So there are many types of evidence-based psychotherapy. The most common and the most heavily researched is cognitive behavior therapy. And this is the type where, you know, if a government funds like six sessions for a client, then it's going to be CBT, okay? So if you want to kind of slide into the government-funded kind, you're going to be doing CBT. But uh, most people in private practice will actually be integrative therapists. So I don't just practice CBT. I hope a variety of perspectives, they're evidence-based and depending on the client that's in front of me in the room, I will draw more heavily on one perspective or another perspective, depending on what would fit best for the person who's in the room. I'll give you another example of a cognitive behavior therapy tool, kind of an experiential cognitive behavior therapy tool. You want to have a piece of paper? Okay, Karen. You can be my volunteer. Awesome. All right. So I'd like you to imagine a time that you were feeling stressed. I mean, as a student, that's pretty easy to come up with, right? So do you have a time in your head where you were feeling stressed? Uh, and yep. you don't have to tell me what it is, but okay. you got the time in your head? Okay. So just thinking about that time that you were feeling stressed, zero to 10, how stressed are you right now just thinking about that? Six and a half. Six and a half. Okay. So I'd like you to take that paper that you have and I'd like you to crumple it into a paper ball. Okay. Now for the next 30 seconds, we're going to keep that ball in the air. If you drop it, no problem. We'll just pick it up and keep on going. Okay. So we're going to keep it in the air like this. I lost my ball. <laughs> All right. You can stop now if you'd like. Zero ten. Where's your stress at right now? I don't know, two. Two. So you went down from a six to two, like a 20 second activity. So from there, what I would do with clients is have them list like five to 10 very, very brief activities that they find enjoyable and distracting so that when they start to feel a strong feeling, they can just take a pause, maybe do one of those activities and calm down a bit so that they can actually bring the frontal lobe back online and be able to think more clearly. So those sort of activities just help people calm down a bit, just like the five, four, three, two, one that we did earlier. These are great ones for anxiety. If I was working with depression and someone's lying in bed all day, well, then what I'm going to do is try to re-engage them in meaningful activities gradually, little bit by little bit. So those are kind of behavioral activities that go along with the, the behavioral piece of CBT. Um, but again, this nothing is mechanical. CBT isn't mechanical. They're not just, here's a tool, I'm going to implement this. It's woven into the relationship that you have with the client and the deepening of the client experience and the exploring everything that's going on for the client. Another, another piece, if you're wondering what the cognitive piece is, is challenging thoughts. So imagine if I had an adolescent who... You know, the situation that they're afraid of, a thought is basically looking at situation, 
thought, feelings, challenging that, and then what happens to the, the thought and the feelings. Okay, so if I were working with an adolescent and they were saying, oh, all their friends are going out to a restaurant, but it's a restaurant where the menu is not in English. Say it's a Chinese restaurant or a Thai restaurant, okay? And they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm too anxious, I can't go. Okay, so what stops you from, from going? Say, well, I'm afraid that I'll make a mistake if I go. And then the waitress or the waiter will think I'm stupid. Okay, so basically what you're saying is you're avoiding going to this restaurant because you think that you're going to make a mistake and that, that the waiter will think you're stupid. So first of all, what's the likelihood that you'll make a mistake? And they're like, oh, I think it's really likely that I'll, that I'll make a mistake. And, you know, how long do you think that the waiter will remember that you made a mistake? Do you think they still remember it one minute after you made the mistake? And the client will usually say, yeah, I think they remember it one minute after I made the mistake. What about like five minutes after you made the mistake? Mm, yeah, I think, I think they might still remember it five minutes. Maybe, maybe. What about 10 minutes after you make the mistake? You know, they probably wouldn't remember it by then because, you know, they're pretty busy. Okay, so they wouldn't remember it 10 minutes after the mistake, but maybe five minutes. So basically there's five minutes where you might feel uncomfortable because you know that during those five minutes, the waiter might still be thinking, oh, this person is stupid for making, for making a mistake. Okay. But let's look at if you were to go to a restaurant with your friends, how much fun would you have? How long do you think you'd have fun for? You know, I think I'd have two hours of fun if I went out with my friends. Okay, so you'd have two hours of fun and maybe five minutes of discomfort if you did make a mistake. Is that right? Yeah. And then they're like, oh, that sounds like a lot more fun than, than a mistake. And I'm like, okay, now let's look at maybe there's also ways to reduce the chance that you'd make a mistake. Where do you find menus nowadays? And they say, you know, I find menus online. Okay, so if you find the menu online in advance, what do you think could happen? Oh, I think I could pick out what I'd like to order. And then I could maybe use Google to figure out how to pronounce what I want to order. Okay, so you'd reduce the likelihood that you'd make a mistake. So after looking at all this, what does that do to your, your fear about going to, to this restaurant with your friends? you know what, I think I'd really like to go to the restaurant with my friends. And you know what, I'm not as worried anymore about making a mistake. So there's a very basic thought record because a lot of thought records, we go right down into core beliefs. Like I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable. And we can, we can actually challenge those with, in really neat ways. But that's, that would be cognitive behavior therapy. But there are lots of other forms of therapy. So some types of therapy target a person within a system like interpersonal therapy or family systems therapy. There's also meaning-centered therapies or value-centered therapies and ones that target more uh, one's, his one's history like psychodynamic approaches. Most therapy is not Freudian. So when you see on TV people lying on a couch and the, the therapist sitting you know, with their back to the person and writing notes, that's not how therapy works. That's your stereotypical 100-year-ago Freudian therapy. So you're not going to th see therapy like that nowadays. And most therapists are integrative, as I mentioned, incorporating a variety of these perspectives into their approach. So what are the different options if you want to practice psychotherapy? I'm just, I'm noticing there's some questions in, in chat. I'm just going to see if there's something I have to answer right away. Yes, there are questions. So before I get to this slide, let's take a peek. 
So someone said, what can be done with an undergrad in psych? Do you happen to know if those options are applicable Canada-wide or are there different requirements between provinces? Yeah, so in some places, you actually have to have specific training as a counselor to be a counselor, but there's no, there's no actual college of counselors, right? There's a college of psychotherapists and the college of, of psycho, uh, sorry, college of psychologists and the college of psychotherapy in Ontario, in which case you have to be registered in order to practice. Some of the provinces don't yet have colleges of psychotherapy, which means anyone can hang out their shingle and practice psychotherapy potentially, depending on what the laws exist in those provinces. But in Ontario, those are regulated professions. So yes, there are differences among provinces. I think there's still one province where you only need an MA, a master's to be a psychologist. I think that's Alberta. Quebec has also moved from an MA to a doctor level psychology. So it's almost consistent across Canada where you have to have a doctorate to be a psychologist. There are some differences across provinces as well. Now, in terms of virtual therapy, because most practitioners now practice in person and virtually just to expand options. If you're a practitioner, say in Ontario, you can only see clients in Ontario if you're a psychotherapist or psychologist. However, there's going to be a really neat new law that comes about that it has an interprovincial agreement. So you might be able to virtually see clients across different provinces over time, but they do need to standardize some regulations in order to do that. Someone else asked a question. I also have a question. To be a psychotherapist, you must have an MA. Yes, province dependent. In Ontario, where I live, you do have to have an MA in order to do this. And I wouldn't recommend practicing without it because you wouldn't know what on earth to do, right? So if you have an MA, it teaches you, it teaches you all the skills you would need to be a psychotherapist. So the different options to practice psychotherapy, one would be clinical psychologist, and there's two options under that. One would be to have a PhD, which involves the thesis plus the clinical work. So if you ever have an interest in things like teaching your research, which to me is like Christmas morning, I love opening up my, my data and finding out my hypothesis support and say, yay, my mental health promotion program is effective. This is awesome. You know, so I love that. And then writing up journal articles feels like writing a novel because it is telling a story. So if you like that kind of thing, you go the PhD route. If you just want to be a psychologist because you want to diagnose you want to do all that assessment piece but you don't want to do the research or the teaching well you could go a PsyD route so there's there's some PsyD programs there's a lot in the states there's not a lot in Canada near where I live there's a PsyD program at the University de Quebec and Lutue but you have to be francophone to go to that one because that program is only in French uh, but there are other PsyD programs that are offered in a variety of different languages mostly English so you could do a PhD or PsyD, but PsyDs are rarer because more people do a PhD in clinical psych than a PsyD. Um, to get into clinical psych, there's usually about 200 or more applicants for 12 spots. Now, it's much easier to get into the French streams than English streams because they have fewer applicants. So if you do speak French, consider applying to the French side of things because you, you increase your odds of getting in. If you don't speak French, that's fine you can increase your odds of getting in in two ways. One, apply to a variety of programs. Two, get to know the professors. If you volunteer with professors, they get to know you, and especially if your research interests really align with theirs, they're gonna see you as a fit and select you. So that's how you get to be one of the 12 out of the people who apply. I mean, some programs might have more than 12 spots, but where I went, they had 12 spots on the English side per year and the French side, they never actually filled all their 
all their spots here. So it was much easier to get into that, that side. Now, to be a psychiatrist, a little easier to get in, which is surprising, right? So same length of training to be a psychologist as to be a psychiatrist, just as many years of school. To be a psychiatrist, uh, there are more spots to get into med school than than, uh, than clinical psych. So that is another option. If you work in a hospital, salaries are higher for a psychiatrist, but in private practice, like I have colleagues who are professors and they basically double their salary with not just their, they have a private practice where they supervise um, psychotherapists who are trained, like qualifying to, to register. And uh, by doing that model, they actually are doubling their, their professor salary. So that'll be pretty in line with the psychiatrist salary. So there are ways that those salaries could be equivalent depending on how you play it. Now, if to be a psychotherapist, again, you need an MA in most, in most provinces. And I said, I wouldn't recommend practicing without. And so in our university at St. Paul's, we, we train our psychotherapy students. Um, to be a social worker, you need an MA. Now, the challenge with social work is you have to really know the program you're applying to. Not all social work programs actually train in psychotherapy or train in, you know, psych assessment to know what's the presenting concerns we actually have at the university that I go to. There's usually students from one of the universities in Ottawa that come over and take my psychopathology course every year because they don't get that in their in their training program. So be careful when you apply to those because some social work jobs are simply you're doing more the community piece, housing, practical pieces, etc. Uh, but other other social work type jobs would be psychotherapy, but it all depends on the training on the training that you have, your background. So if you're going to go the social work route and you want to do psychotherapy, just make sure that the program you're applying to actually trains in psychotherapy. Now, other areas. You could be a psychological associate with an A. So you'd register with things like if you're in Ontario, you could register with the College of Psychologists of Ontario with an MA. For that, you can't diagnose. It's basically the same as being a psychotherapist. But the perk is the College of Psychologists is getting rid of psychological associate. Kind of most colleges are getting rid of psychological associate, which means people who practice for a certain length of time, they're actually going to be grandfathered as psychologists. So they're going to be operated for free, basically. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's just something to consider. And some family doctors, say if you decide you want to go into medicine, some family doctors can get training in psychotherapy, at least in, in cognitive behavior therapy. There's some that practice that because that's someone that is fundable by their by their medical organization or by OHIP rather. Okay, so that gives you a good idea of some things that you can apply to.